Good morning. Here we go. We're trying to make some technology work for us this morning to praise the Lord together. Um, if there are visitors or guests with us this morning, uh, my name is Pastor Howard. It says so right here. And uh, I am the interim moderator here at Courtright Presbyterian Church as we look for a new full-time lead pastor uh, in the time of vacancy. So it's been my privilege and pleasure to occasionally lead worship and to do the important things that happen behind the scenes as we uh, search for that new minister to lead us into the future. This morning, I am delighted to ask Dave Recker to come forward and lead in the reading of our scripture lessons. They come from Philippians 3, and he has uh, such a wonderful voice. I'm sure you're going to love <laughs> hearing him read the lesson for us. Sorry, I've lost my voice. No, that's not true. Philippians 3. Finally, my dear friends, be glad that you belong to the Lord. It doesn't bother me to write the same things to you that I've written before. In fact, it's for your own good. So watch out for those people who behave like dogs. They are evil and want to do more than just circumcise you. You thought we had it tough. <laughs> but we are ones who are truly circumcised because we worship by the power of God's spirit and take pride in Christ Jesus. We don't brag about what we've done, although I could. Others may brag about themselves, but I have more reason to brag than anyone else. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, and I'm from the nation of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a true Hebrew. As a Pharisee, I strictly obeyed the law of Moses, and I was so eager I even made trouble for the church, and I did everything the law demands in order to please God. But Christ has shown me that once, what I once thought was valuable is worthless. Nothing is as wonderful as knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've given up everything else and counted all as garbage. All I want is Christ and to know that I belong to him. I could not make myself acceptable to God by obeying the law of Moses. God accepted me simply because of my faith in Christ. All I want is to know Christ and the power that raised him to life. I want to suffer and die as he did, so that somehow I also may be raised to life. But I have not yet reached my goal, and I am not perfect. But Christ has taken hold of me, so I keep running, struggling to take hold of the prize. My friends, I don't feel that I've already arrived, but I forget what is behind, and I struggle for what is ahead. I run toward the goal so I can win the prize of being called to heaven. This is the prize God offers because of what Christ Jesus has done. All of us who are mature should think in the same way. And if any of you think differently, good news, God will make it clear to you. But we must keep going in the direction that we are now headed. My friends, I want you to follow my example and learn from others who closely follow the example we set for you. I often warned you that many people are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And now, with tears in my eyes, I warn you again that they are headed for hell. They worship their stomachs and brag about the disgusting things they do. All they can think about are the things of this world. But we are citizens of heaven and are eagerly, eagerly waiting for our Savior to come from there. Our Lord Jesus Christ has power over everything, and he will make those poor bodies of ours like his own glorious body. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm jumping ahead of myself here. First, let's consider where we come into the text here. Uh, the text started with the word finally. Finally, or in conclusion, these are words that congregations long to hear from preachers when a sermon has become tedious. Words a reader might welcome when a dense section of Pauline's epistles are getting to its climax. Words so that we can breathe again. Especially when the last sentence of the text in Greek is one long, breathtaking pronouncement as Paul rushes to his conclusion. A conclusion not unlike what we heard last week in Carla's preaching from Philippians 1.21. There it said, For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. Now this week, in chapter 3, Paul's going to flesh this out a little bit for us. So Paul's letter this morning is talking to us about what living in Christ is meant to be. He teaches the Philippians, and by extension us at KPC, who are in Christ, what this terminology is all about. Paul warns us that there are plenty of people out there who are pretenders in the faith. Those are who, whom have an agenda that just doesn't fit with the gospel. Paul unapologetically calls these people dogs. Now, dog, you know, for, for a, a Hebrew, is pretty derogatory. There's only one thing I can think of that's worse than calling a Christian Jew a dog. That's calling them a pig. But that was already taken by Jesus. Because you'll remember the parable of the prodigal son. He's already used that metaphor. And I'm sure that Paul's heard that. So he's using dog as the most derogatory thing he can think of to call those Judaizers who are trying to add something to the gospel. Trying to say that, well, yeah, of course you can be a Christian, but first you must do something else. Now Paul is totally against adding anything to the gospel. Okay, so we're going to hear this over and over again as a refrain <clears throat> in the uh, text this morning. So, Paul proceeds on the basis that anyone who tries to add qualifications or restrictions upon the gospel that he and his missionaries have presented are corrupting the gospel. Indeed, he says they're preaching no gospel at all. This morning, we're going to encounter the Judaizers, and they are the ones who want to include the right of circumcision as required for males to become Christians. I believe some of you may have encountered some of these extra requirements in your Christian journey. Uh, no dancing, no smoking, no drinking, no uh, commingling with Catholics. That's a pretty old one. But you also encounter things like, you can only worship here. You must sign our covenant. Sound familiar to some of you? Paul would protest 
greatly. These are not part of the Christian gospel. These are fabrications that are added by certain communities. I once heard a Christian speaker talk about these kind of communities. <laughs> he was a great fellow. He'd come to his Christian faith later in life, in his mid-20s, and he, he described going to some of these communities in his youth. And he said his reaction to these uh, requirements were he couldn't believe it, that they put all these restrictions on all the things that he thought of as his goals when he was a young person. So obviously those weren't going to work out for him. But scholar Frank Thielman has a better way of putting it for us this morning. Oh, gee. My thing has kicked me way out. Sorry. This is September 3rd. This is KPC. And this is Howard's sermon. All right. So here we are at the next slide. Yes. So here's what Frank Tillman has to say. By saying that he considers everything to be loss, Paul does not mean that his Jewish upbringing, the law, and everything else were evil. Hold that thought. But that his attitude towards them was evil. So he had the attitude that the law could make him right with God. If he just kept all the, all the rules of Moses' law, he'd be good with God. There's nothing wrong with that, except that it made Paul haughty. You know what haughty is? It rhymes with naughty. Haughty, naughty Paul. At his conversion, he had to drop the notion that he and God were partners in this project of justification. How many times have you heard your own brothers and sisters in Christ say, I'm working on it. it it's something we and God are doing. I'm sorry, it's not. God's already done it. It's something that you may be recognizing has happened, and now you want to participate in it, but you're not doing it. I'm sorry, Nike's just out to lunch on this one. You know what I'm hinting at? You know, just do it. I'm sorry, you don't do it, no matter how good your shoes are. So, he had to drop the notion that he and God were partners in the project of justification and accept the means of righteousness that God alone, I should have made that flash and bright and provided. That means that Paul, as Paul summarizes in the phrase, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Once you know Jesus, you know there's nothing that you have to do. It's all grace, and so is the response. All grace. It's not demanded of you, it is your response to something supernatural. It's your response to something that is a gift that actually is beyond words. Can I get a nod? That's a Presbyterian amen, yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, yay. I can go to the next slide. So, here we are. I'd like to be ahead of you a little bit. There was a song in the 70s 
that was extremely popular, this song. Some of you remember it? Some of you weren't born in 1970, I know. But it's still played on the radio once in a while, so you might have heard it. It's by Badfinger, and it says, no matter what you are, as the title. No matter what you are. You know? Good. I'm not singing it. No matter what you are, I will always be with you. Doesn't matter what you do, girl, ooh, girl, with you. No matter what you do, I will always be around. Now, when I listen to that, the first thing that occurs to me is to keep my finger on my other instrument, uh, is that clearly we had music in my youth that already began to proclaim the reality that the social fabric that we grew up with was deteriorating. It was breaking down. It was being torn irreparably. Because here, without the slightest notion of what the power of these lyrics are usurping, the bad, bad finger spoke as if they had the power to sustain what only God could do. No human being is capable of doing what those lyrics say. This is only something God can do supernaturally. But they sang it beautifully, and, and suckers like me when I was young, well, we thought this was the way to a young woman's heart. We didn't have the words ourselves, and so I remember as a young athlete, there would be a bunch of us in the shower after a basketball game, and we would sing this. A bunch of guys, am I getting this through to you? in the shower after a basketball game. We didn't have the nerve to say something to the girls yet, but we could sing these kind of stupid songs to each other in the shower. How ridiculous, how, how, how crazy as a young person, and yet those words stick with you when you're 70 years old, and you kind of remember back that far, but the distant memory of your first love that you think of back then, is, it, it's, it's like kind of gone. All you remember is that you were a fool to think that any lyric like this could possibly be true. With the proviso, a few exceptions. There are a few exceptions where people have actually been capable of loving each other and making a covenant when they are very young. And I don't want to, to make light of that. That does happen. But not because they listen to Badfinger. Okay. So, in my first pastoral charge, however, I encountered something that helped me understand why Paul's teaching this morning is so sound, it's so important, and it's often misunderstood or misapplied. Even at almost 40 years of age, you can do the math, I was still clearly naive in the realities of the world, especially as they pertain to Christians and marriage. Marriage covenants as I understood them myself back then, and still perhaps do. My belief had always been that, that, that we Christians were better. We Christians knew how to keep covenant promises. We understood that an oath taken before God and these people was substantive. It was meaningful. It was important. It established our future. Surely the statistics would bear this out. Divorce rates among Christians would be far better than the, the average in society. 
And I was blown away to find out I was wrong. I was wrong. Just didn't hold up. Statistically, Christians divorce just as often as people in regular society. And then, to take the lid off completely of my naivete, one family crucified, and I don't use that word lightly, crucified my belief system about Christians and marriage. This family we had grown very close to. They had children the same age as ours. They attended church with us. They went to the same schools the children did. They competed in the same uh, sports program, so they were about the same age. We thought they were wonderful. Who knows what they thought of us? But at any rate, our eldest children were early high school years when the mother of that family contracted an aggressive form of cancer. She was knocked flat. Beautiful, beautiful woman. 40s middle age, middle age. And this cancer knocked her flat. Before she had even finished her course of treatment, her husband left her. Her husband went and had an affair. He abandoned her and the children. And my conception of what Christian marriage was all about was shattered. He snuck out of town and took up residence in another place so that he would not be scorned and we would not pour out our vitriol upon him. And it was terrible. And what was most devastating was as our congregation tried to draw near to the family, they withdrew. And I think of the children, and I think of that poor woman who did wonderfully and survived and is still a beautiful woman, how they feel in the midst of that betrayal, how they feel about the covenants that were made, how they feel where was God in the midst of all of that. And I'm sure they felt abandoned. And every September, I remember. We haven't stayed close, we're not in touch, but every September, because of school enrollments and getting back to that part of life, I remember. And I pray. I pray for what seemed at the time irreparable. And, and when I come to the Philippians text, I begin to understand. I begin to understand Paul in a new way. I begin to understand life in a new way. I begin to look through what Calvin calls the spectacles of faith. And what I see is Paul wants to ensure his beloved Philippians, his beloved KPC church, that we are connected, but we need to be connected in the right way. We need to be connected in the right order to a source of love and redemption that cannot be taken from us, cannot be taken from them, because it is theirs through the actions of God's love. It is there because Christ Jesus gave himself for us. 
It's not there because of anything we've done. It's not lost because of anything we've done. It is a fact of life. It exists because God made it possible. Amen. Nod, nod. I acknowledge your amen. This letter is the foundation of realizing that it is Christ in us. It is Christ for us. It is Christ before, Christ behind, Christ beside, above, below. It is Christ, all Christ. And when you grasp that reality, when that reality is your life, it is the fabric of your being, nothing can shake you. And this is what Paul wants you to grab a hold of so that life does not shake you down. Now, I'm there and you're there. Nope. Bad, bad finger means you're there. Okay. So the part of the text that illustrates this for us is, but Christ has shown me that I was once thought, what I once thought was valuable is worthless. Nothing is as wonderful as knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have given up everything else and counted as garbage. That's such a great Greek word. It's splanktha. And if you know Greek at all, it's, it's the content of your bowels. Yeah? Now, I don't want to say what I call that in English, but you get the message, right? It's the content of your bowels, your large intestine. It is, it is the worst possible thing. So he says everything that he knew up until that point, all he learned as a Pharisee, all of the knowledge he gained as an Israelite, of a, as, as, you know, all of that, it, it was hmm, crap. Only in the, in the Greek, it says something much more illustrative. All I want is Christ and to know that I belong to him. I could not make myself acceptable to God by obeying the law of Moses. God accepted me simply because of my faith in Christ. All I want is to know Christ and the power that raised him to life. And now that, that red part, he did not want to know how he was raised He's not a scientist. He's, he's not looking for proof of how those atoms dissolved and then became something else. He believes it happened. That's all that matters to him. I know we have some scientists in here that are amazingly intelligent and capable people, and some of them have spoken to me and said, well, they don't care either. What matters is that it did happen. Okay, I want to suffer and die as he did so that somehow I can be raised like him. So when you do, oh, I had to learn to carry this thing with me. When you do encounter it to that degree, you are going to know in your, in your being it is real. And it is what you want and as you get older, it becomes even more important. You know, when you're 20, you think, oh, well, you know, I'm just starting out. This is fine. I maybe don't need to worry about this yet. 
And in the early church, they didn't get baptized right away for just that reason, because they thought of baptism as the rite and ritual that brought you to forgiveness and to the entrance to getting forgiven and going to heaven. So they delayed their baptism till just before they died, if they could. What, what <laughs> radical nonsense thinking that was. But at any rate, what is important, right? What is important is once you have grasped that reality, doesn't mean you'll never make another mistake. It means that you're going to try with all your might to live into that fullness of Christ. And when you mess up, as you will, you have the forgiveness that's necessary to try again. You're not devastated. You're not blown away. You have what's necessary to start again. Okay. So we discover when Christ indwells us that the ways of the world, that the secular pursuits, or even more shockingly trying to please God is impossible. Paul confesses that as a Pharisee, he attempted to keep the laws of Moses. In his own opinion, he even thought he did a good job. But now that Christ has come to him and granted him the knowledge of a relationship with God, because Christ is God, he realizes that striving after pleasing God is like what Koheleth says. Life is just chasing after the wind. It can't be done. So if you're feeling guilty that you think God is judging you and, and he's unhappy with you, the truth of the matter is, so what? Christ intervenes for you. And it's not you're living your life to please God. You should be pleased that God has intervened for you so that you may live your life to the fullest. And the way that you respond to that is just allowing Christ to be in you, allowing Christ to be part of your decisions, allowing Christ to be part of your future, of your existence. When Paul realizes this, he is totally transformed. When he is knocked off his horse, as we see in the pictures, I don't know if he was on a horse, he was going to Damascus, and he is knocked down and he is blind, and he wants to know what's going on. And he hears that voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And his life is totally transformed. The way that we understand that whole thing is that once he knows who's touched him, he's never the same. And it's so much similar to P Peter going up on the mountain in the transfiguration. When we read that story, often we chuckle. <laughs> Peter, are you out of your mind? Of course he's out of his mind. He's up there in the mountain with, with the Son of God, and these amazing things happen. What do you think he's going to do? Yeah, he's out of his mind, and he's changed, forever changed. He's, he's never the same. So an encounter, a, a true encounter with Jesus is going to cause this kind of thing. So again, Frank Thielman offers us some insight. For Paul, flesh means the highest righteousness, the most wisdom, the under, uh, religion, understanding, and will 
of which the world is capable. This, I love this quote. Therefore, the monk is not justified by his order, nor the priest by the mass and the canonical hours, nor the philosopher by his wisdom, nor the theologian by theology, nor the Turk by the Koran, nor the Jews by Moses. And it carries on, there we go. In other words, no matter how wise and righteous people may be according to reason and the divine law, yet all their works, merits, masses, righteousness, and acts of worship, they are not justified. That's a pretty fancy way of putting things, isn't it? What it basically means is try all you want. Try all you want. Have your parents say, you were a good boy. You were such a lovely girl. Do you think that's going to cut it? No. You can't. You can't cut it. You can't join a group. You can't profess often enough. You can't confess often enough. You, you can't. What is it, Paul says, what is it that clenches the deal? It is Christ in me. It is Christ in me. And, and the more that I shrink and the more that Christ grows, the closer and closer I get to being what God intended me to be. And that should be our goal. That should be our goal. We should love the Lord with all our heart and all our strength and all our might and all our mind and all our soul so that this transformation is real. I think I harped to you many, many times that if we filled this church with the people I went to high school with, they would faint. They would drop faint to see that I became a minister. They would. Because I, I was just the biggest rotter you ever saw at high school. The biggest, the worst. That, that, that wonderful Paul Bunyan writing, the chief of sinners. Yeah, I know you don't believe it, but one day I'll bring someone along to have a testimony and you'll believe it. <laughs> so anyway, that's what it's all about. So, oh, I'm going backwards. So let's have our finally. In turning the Torah into laws to be observed by God's people, thus turns them into merely human regulations and misses their intent entirely. This is a brilliant observation. So what happened in, in the Old Testament to the Hebrews was that they codified, they codified the laws of Moses, and they used them the way that we use laws today. So if I, if I pull out of the parking lot here and burn rubber and head down Devere Street, chances are maybe a cop will catch me, and I have broken the law. And that's the way the Hebrew people used the laws of Moses. Okay? So if, if, if I break out my barbecue here on the Sabbath and start mixing up some really good-smelling stuff, but I'm laboring away to do it, 
And some Pharisee at the back of the church says, hey, you're not supposed to be cooking on the Sabbath. That's the way they used the law. And so what you have is they've, they've missed the intent. The intent of the Sabbath was for rest, to, to, to renew yourself, to be close to God, to, to turn away from the regular things and routines and take a breath. However, they saw it as, let's, let's get those people that don't follow the rules. And people made a living as Pharisees. They were the Old Testament cops. Okay? That's not what God intended. What God intended was that they would live out through these rules, becoming God's people. And so they rewrite how this should be understood, and they call it the circumcision of the heart. Oh, isn't that an ugly phrase? <laughs> circumcision of my heart. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's very poetic, and I don't think it's a very nice image to think of, but it is a precise way to understand the transformation. We go from having a rite or a ritual to having something spiritual, something indwelling. There's no such thing as a circumcision of the heart. It is a new image to understand how God relates to us. He doesn't want a physical ritual for you to understand your relationship with him. He wants to indwell. He wants to be a part of us. He wants to come and be with us. And interestingly, it's not uh, overtly given to one half of the created humanity. It's given to all of us. We all have a heart. We all don't have the other part that gets circumcised. You catch my drift. Frank got it. He'll explain it at the coffee hour. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. So, what happens now is we have this all-inclusive covenant offered in this beautiful way. It's also important to know that it was offered in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. This is not something new. It was prophesied beginning in Deuteronomy, it's in Jeremiah, and it's in Ezekiel. If you want to go look those up after church, this was something that God intended from the beginning. Nothing new. All right. I did say finally, didn't I? <laughs> so here we go. This is the end. Um, and I'm going to end with Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is a brilliant exegete. And what he offers as his conclusion to this uh, text this morning, I'm going to read to you. I'll read to these guys for a change. Paul's vision seems to have been seems to have the better of it in every imaginable way, and a common return to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord could go a long way toward renewing the church for its task in the postmodern world. Amen. Our lives must be cruciform. By that, it means following Christ. And when it says suffer for Christ, it doesn't mean you have to go out and be martyred. It means you have to live a life that is Christ-like. 
And in order to do that, believe me, you will have to suffer. They may not be, you know, mega suffering, but there will be suffering, right? How long did it take me to get that Apple computer I talked about last time I was here? Oh, I suffered. I suffered so long waiting. I had the old one for, what did I say? Nine years? Nine years. And I wanted one, and I wanted one. And I had to have that gratification later, later, later. And then you folks hired me. Now I had no reason for later gratification, so I bought it. That's, that's putting your sins off till later. But what Jesus is talking about here is at least, at least examining what you're doing and thinking about it and thinking about it in those terms. And then going further, well, what does it cost to put the old one in the landfill? And what is it, who, who's making this? Where are they making it? What do they pay them for a reasonable wage? And Justin's wonderful at some of these social justice things. If you want to sit down with him for 15 minutes, he could map out this whole thing for you. And then you wouldn't buy it. So I never talked to Justin. <laughs> so... Our lives must be cruciform if they are count, to count for anything at all. But that word is preceded by the equally important one. It's the power of the resurrection. It's knowing the power that Jesus lives so we can live. Okay? Which both enables us to live as those marked by the cross and guarantees our final glory. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you. Let's pray. As we move to your table, Lord, we thank you that you have given everything. You've held back nothing, and you have loved us with a love that is so complete, it's hard to understand. And so in that grace and in that perfection, we welcome you here, and we look to you as Justin shares with us this most precious sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Amen.